We're going to hear from the Bible, so grab your Bibles. Uh, Beck's going to read from Revelation chapter 16, and then Judy from Exodus. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will get one to you. The first reading this morning is Revelation chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second poured out his bowl into the sea. It turned to blood like a dead man's, and all life in the sea died. The third poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. I heard the angel of the waters say, You are righteous, who was and is the Holy One, for you have decided these things. Because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you also gave them blood to drink. They deserve it. Then I heard someone from the altar say, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth poured out his bowl on the sun. He was given the power to burn people with fire, and people were burned by the intense heat. So they blasphemed the name of God, who had the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues from pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, yet they did not repent of their actions. The sixth poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of, the, of God the Almighty. Look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go naked and they see his shame. So they assembled them at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Then the seventh poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne, saying, It is done. There was lightnings, rumblings and thunders, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since man has been on the earth. So great was the, qu- the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell from heaven on the people and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail because that plague was extremely severe. The second reading is from Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 to 20. It's found on page 57. The eighth plague, locusts. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that that I may do these miraculous signs of mine among them. 
and so that you may tell your son and grandson how severely I dealt with the Egyptians and perform miraculous signs among them, and you will know that I am Yahweh. So Moses and Aaron went to the, to, into Pharaoh and told him, This is what Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let my people go, then tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They will cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will eat the remainder left to you that escaped the hail. They will eat every tree you have growing in the fields. They will fill your houses, all your official houses, and the houses of all the Egyptians, something your fathers and ancestors never saw since the time they occupied the land until today. Then he turned and left Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh's officials asked him, How long must this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so that they may worship Yahweh their God. Don't you realize yet that Egypt is devastated? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship Yahweh your God, Pharaoh said. But exactly who will be going? Moses replied, We will, be go, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds because we must hold Yahweh's festival. He said to them, May Yahweh be with you if I ever let you and your families go. Look out, you are planning evil. No, only the men may go and worship Yahweh, for that is what you have been asking for. And they were driven from Pharaoh's presence. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt, and the locusts will come up over it and eat every plant in the land, everything that the hail left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord sent an east wind over the land all that day and through the night. By morning, the east wind had brought in the locusts. The locusts went up over the entire land of Egypt and settled on the whole territory of Egypt. Never before had there been such a large number of locusts, and there never will be again. They covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was black, and they consumed all the plants on the ground and all the fruit on the trees that the hail had left. Nothing green was left on the trees or the plants in the field throughout the land of Egypt. Pharaoh urgently sent for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Yahweh your God and against you. Please forgive my sin once more and make an appeal to Yahweh your God so that he will take his, this death away from me. Moses left Pharaoh's presence and appealed to the Lord. Then the Lord changed the wind to a strong west wind and it carried all the locusts and blew them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the Israelites go. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning, friends. Uh, my name's Simon. If I haven't met you before, uh, and if you don't recognise me, I have been away for a while, uh, overseas, and I got sick. 
Uh, if you're aware of that and been praying for me, I really do give you thanks for your prayers. Uh, I'm feeling a lot better um, back in the saddle, as they say, um, up here, being able to share God's word with you. So I'm really thankful for that. Should we pray as we come before Exodus this morning together? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is eternal. Lord, that it is true. And Father, we do ask that this morning, by your spirit, you would speak to our hearts by your word. Father, those things which we cling to, that we find security in, that we find meaning in, that are not you, Please have your way with us this morning. May you lead us to a place this morning where we, all of us, leave here today solely dependent on you, not on ourselves, not on the things of this world, but on your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, to that end, we would see Jesus this morning. We would hear Jesus this morning. And we would love Jesus this morning and for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are back in the book of Exodus, and uh, this is the third week of nine in this great text, the Gospel of the Old Testament. Uh, I don't know if you know the shape of the, of, the, of the book of Exodus, but basically we start in chapter one in slavery. God's people are oppressed, they are enslaved, they are hopeless, helpless. Uh, nothing is looking very good for them. And yet then by the very end of Exodus, chapter 40, yes, there are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus, uh, we find God's people at God's place worshipping God, worshipping Yahweh, the God of all things. And the reason why they move from slavery to worship from chapter 1 to 40 is because of a rescue that takes place in, in chapter 13. This morning we are looking at chapters sort of 6 through to 11 or thereabouts. Uh, and so we're yet to kind of get to the rescue. But this morning is all, uh, it's a beautiful story, a challenging story, though, of judgment and hope. And, and it's very relevant. I don't know if you sort of come to the book of Exodus and particularly these nine plagues which we're looking at this morning and think, far out, Simon, that's just ancient history. It's nothing to do with my life. I don't know what you think about when you think about uh, ancient Egypt, for example. What do you think about when you think about ancient Egypt? Hieroglyphics? Uh, do you think about Asterix and Cleopatra? Who thinks about Asterix and Cleopatra? Me and someone else. Uh, do you think about decaying bodies that were once wrapped up in sort of bandages and they're mummified? Do you think of that? Uh, do you think of the film The Mummy? Who's seen the film The Mummy? Oh, just a few people. I've never seen it. Just the posters. It looks interesting. Um, what else do you think about? Mysterious, magical powers that various people had back in those days. I'm not sure what it is. I think of Tutankhamun. Does anyone remember Tutankhamun? My grandmother, my grandfather used to have images of Tutankhamun all around their home. I had no idea what was really going on. They kind of looked interesting. Um, but there was also this the story of the curse of Tutankhamun. If you looked upon him, you would die. Um, I'm not sure they believed in that bit. Uh, but what is your picture of ancient Egypt? Uh, do you think that these plagues are just old ancient history and have nothing to say to us today? 
Well, they do have a lot to say to us today. I'm not sure if you ever notice in the media whenever there's a, a locust storm or a plague that sort of comes in from the rural areas, you know, there's all these headlines across, you know, locust plagues, return of the plagues and things like that, or a hailstorm hits Sydney and it's plague sort of proportions all over again. You see, it's highly relevant, this story of the plagues, this narrative that we have in front of us, because what God is doing is God is systematically knocking away all the props, all the idols, all the things that the Egyptian people found security and safety in, their gods. He systematically knocks them out one by one. And God is in the habit of doing that. Not just in you, not just in the Egyptians, but in you and me. One of the things, as we, you know, it was beautiful, we just prayed then for the, the new Archbishop of Sydney. One of the things he was quoted as saying in, in the Sydney Morning Herald on, on Saturday was that one of his lasting legacies is that he hopes that we will continue and have been a church and will be a church that continues to preach that Jesus Christ is King of the universe. Because that is what God is doing here in these plagues. He is preaching a message to the people of Egypt, to the people of the world, that he is king. He is king. And God teaches us sometimes, slowly and steadily, that the props in our lives, the things we find security in, that aren't him, they will fail us, but he will never fail us. C.S. Lewis I quote him here, he says, It's a terrible truth that part of us dreads to depend solely on God. We gravitate instead to things or people, and this is so deeply ingrained that we will not turn to him as long as he leaves us anything else for us to turn to. But in our clearest minds, Lewis says, in our clearest moments and in death and judgment, what else do we have but him? So we could do well to practice such soul dependence here on earth, Lewis says. And it's good for him to teach us, even to force us to do that. The plagues that we have before us, these nine plagues, packed with detail. We can't look at them all in detail, but I've got three points. This is a first for me. I've never preached a sermon with three Ps before. Apparently it's the done thing. I've never done that before. But here are three Ps. In fact, three Gs and three Ps. They go together. The first GP is this. God's power. We see God's power clearly on show throughout these nine plagues. Secondly, we see God's proclamation. God proclaiming a message to the world. And it's a message not just of judgment, but a message also of hope, great hope. And thirdly, my last GP is God's preview. God gives us a preview of a judgment that he places upon the people of Egypt, but of a a preview of a greater judgment to come in human history. They're the three. Power, proclamation, preview. Have you got them? Beautiful. If you've been with us in these last few weeks, we find Israel, a people oppressed under slavery, under the hand of the Egyptian pharaoh, and they are hopeless and helpless. They're trapped. But what God is going to do is use one man, Moses, to deliver his people out of slavery to the land of milk and honey, to the promised land. He wants to show his people that he is utterly secure, dependable and faithful and able. And he also wants to show the nation, Egypt, and therefore by extension all the nations of the world, who he is, that all may come to trust in him. 
You know, God could clearly have just walked the Egyptians out of Egypt, uh, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt in like five minutes. He could have just opened the gate and said, there you go, out you go. He could have done that, couldn't he? He is the great I am. And yet this process will be so drawn out, so comprehensive, so unforgettable that everyone will be impacted by it. So first, come with me to Exodus chapter 7, verse 10 to 13, where we see God's power kind of on display. I mean, God's power has been on display already in Exodus, but here we see him begin. This is the event that precipitates the nine plagues that are about to come. Exodus chapter 7, verse 10 to 13. Moses and Aaron, uh, they walk into the presence of the Pharaoh. Um, I think this is back, you know how Pharaoh was in the court, uh, Moses was in the court of Pharaoh for 40 years, so I think that's why he's granted such sort of open access to the court of Pharaoh. And here he is, Moses and Aaron. By the way, these two guys are octogenarians. Do you know what they are? Old men. Moses, 80. uh, Aaron, probably 83. So here we are, picture this. Two men, Moses, 80, Aaron, uh, 83, hobbling in on their Zimmer frames, basically, into the presence of Yahweh. Uh, Moses, one of the Psalms, he's attributed to him, writes, a man's life is 70 plus 10 years, should God give him the strength. Moses is ready to retire. And yet here he is, facing up to the the great king, Pharaoh, to ask God, ask him, let my people go. There you go, verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials and it became a serpent. Here's a work of God, a metamorphosis. A stick becomes a snake right in front of the official and the magicians and the Pharaoh's face. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. This is, these guys weren't just magic. They had satanic power at command, evil forces at their command. Each one threw down his staff and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Can you imagine the scene? One staff goes down becomes a snake. And then they say, Moses, Aaron, Haven't you got anything better than the stick-to-snake trick? We've we've been doing that for ages. Stick-to-snake? Is that all you've got? They chuck down there stacks of snakes all over the place. You see the point? One snake swallows up all the snakes. And isn't it interesting? When you go to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, speaking about the most amazing event in human history, Christ came into the world, God's own son, God himself, comes into the world, dies for the sin of humanity, overcomes evil. The punishment of sin is death, and he overcomes that. And what's the, what's the phrase that Paul uses? Death has been swallowed up in victory. I'm sure Paul is thinking about Exodus this very moment. There's the evil of the satanic forces of the magicians in Pharaoh's court and with one staff, one snake, swallows up the evil right before their eyes. This is all to show that Yahweh is powerful. There is no one like Yahweh in the world. Swallows up evil, swallows up death. Yet, The religious pluralist, Pharaoh, doesn't see it that way, does he? He hardens his heart, verse 13. However, Pharaoh's heart hardened. 
He did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. You know, Pharaoh's not an atheist. Pharaoh is one of a number of Egyptians who believe in multiple gods. And it's like this is all happening like in Sydney. We live in a world of religious pluralists who come up to you. I'm sure you've met these people who say, well, I've got my gods, you've got your god, I don't really care about your god, and don't even ask me to convert to your god because, well, that's just intolerant and, quite frankly, non-PC. Pharaoh believes in gods, but he doesn't believe in the one true living God. He's a pluralist. And so he hardens his heart, and so the plagues are launched by God. The plagues are launched. Who knows the order of the plagues off by heart? Who's been to Sunday school, you know? Yeah, I don't either. But here, let me tell you what they are. Here they are. I've written them down. I get a cheat sheet. You can actually scan through your Bible and you can see the order. The, the, the plagues are these. God turns the Nile River, the source of life and sustenance and health and vitality of the Egyptians, into blood. And because it turns into blood, all the frogs kind of leap out. They don't like it very much, but then they come onto the, all over the land. They die, and so the gnats and the flies come and feed on the carcasses. Then the livestock are affected, the cows, the donkeys, the sheep, the goats, everything. And God sends boils on the skin of the people. Hail comes like it's never been seen before. Locusts come, and then darkness hits the, earth, the, the Egyptians. And these plagues are not random or meaningless plagues. They strike right at the very heart of Egyptian idolatry. The Egyptians, they depend on the Nile for their life, their sustenance, their drinking water. And yet God makes it utterly useless. The Egyptians worshipped the sun god Ra. Yet God brings darkness, switches it off. He teaches the the Egyptians, he teaches them that their gods are no match and they fail to protect them and provide for them. Only Yahweh can do these things. They had about 80 idols or gods, that's what we understand in the ancient Egypt. And these gods they would see, elements of creation would control land and sky and everything in between and when the god was kind of happy and doing things, things would go well for the Egyptians and so on and so forth. That's what they thought. And so these plagues attack everything between land and sky. Your gods are useless, says Yahweh. In fact, non-existent. Paul in Acts chapter 19 says, your gods, he says to the pagans, are no gods at all. There is only one God, and that God is Yahweh. The heart of Pharaoh, though, this is what gets me, the heart of Pharaoh is no different from my heart, and his heart is no different from your heart. Our hearts are idle factories. The great reformer Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. I, added, I add to that, not that I really can or should add to Calvin, I say our hearts are idle factories 24-7. We don't need to go down the road to a concrete sculpture place and purchase ourselves an idol. Our hearts are well and truly good at creating our own idols. Our hearts, friends, as the Bible, as the scriptures teach us, are so depraved that we make idols all the time. Things we place our trust in. Things we place our hope in, our career, our properties, our family, our friends. But they will not support us. They will fail us ultimately. No matter how good they seem to be, they are fake supports. We need to know God's security. 
For he made us. The longer we go on relying on fake supports, the more dangerous life becomes. The sooner we recognize that the idols we put up in our lives are fake and fail us, the healthier we will be. Couple that with a knowledge of God's unending faithfulness and love and sufficiency, then you are in a wonderful place. See, God has the sensational ability and grace to turn us from our idols to himself and then give us the security that we so long for. With these nine plagues, we see a supernatural battle going on. A battle between Yahweh, the God, the only God, and these other gods. The supernatural God, Yahweh, controlling the natural world because he is the God who created the natural world. If you believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that out of chaos and disorder, God created order and the world, then you surely have to believe that God can do what he does here in the plagues. You shouldn't think for a second that it's a problem for God to turn the Nile River into blood. I think the question we ought to ask is, how can God, who is so enormous, even see that puny little river and be able to do that? God, in all his majesty and power, was able to do this. Some people, and you read texts and scholars and all sorts of stuff on this, and some people say, oh, well, you know, let's give give you a natural explanation of what happened. There was all this red soil around the Nile, and that sort of just got shoveled down into the Nile, and that's why it kind of turned red. Other people say algal bloom. There was an algae that sort of crept up on top of the Nile, and that sort of gave it a red colour. No. Those who think that it was just soil or algae missed the point of this whole account. God turned the water into blood. to turn people to see his power. Notice as you you read, I really encourage you to do, to read these nine plagues. As you go through, you see that the only thing the magicians of Egypt can do is copy the plagues. So when God turns the Nile into blood, all the magicians can do is just make it bloodier. When God sends the frogs as the plague, all the magicians can do is make more frogs. And then they give up. They realise they're out of their league. This is a work of God. They learn much faster than Pharaoh that this is God and he is God. Let me point out to you a few themes of God's power that run through this section. God's power is on a scale, firstly, like it has never been seen before. We read of the hail that comes in 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 1, and it's the worst hailstorm that has ever been seen or will ever be seen since. The locusts in chapter 10, verse 6, are going to be unparalleled. And the darkness that falls on the land, chapter 10, verse 21, is such a darkness that you can feel it. It's thick and eerie and horrible. God's power is on a scale unseen before, unprecedented. And the second thing we see in all these plagues is God's amazing timing. We see that God is in control of space and time. He determines when the plague will start and when the plague will end. He's able to announce these things. Have a look with me. Chapter 9, verse 5. Chapter 9, verse 5. 
And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land, the plague of the livestock. Chapter 9, verse 18. Chapter 9, verse 18. Tomorrow, at this time, I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Chapter 8, verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 10. Tomorrow, he answered, that's when the plague of the frogs. 8.29. God, we could go through all those references. God here is demonstrating he is in complete control of natural creation. And it's timing. Space and time in the sovereign hands of God. And thirdly, and perhaps most profoundly, is that of all the things, God is in control of the human heart. Our hearts. Even the heart of Pharaoh. We read through this account that there are times when Pharaoh hardens his own heart, yet there are times when God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart, he hardens his own heart when he acts sinfully. And yet God hardens his heart when he, God is acting as judge. And the combination of those two things makes it impossibly impossible for Pharaoh to respond rightly to God. But God is also able to soften hearts. Chapter 9, verse 20, some of the Egyptian officials, seeing all that is going on, begin to fear the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 7, the same officials go to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, this is my paraphrase, wake up, wake up. Do you see what's going on? Our land is devastated. Please, they plead with him, listen to, listen to Moses. Just do what he's asking. And of course, when it comes time for the Israelites to exit or leave Egypt en route to the promised land, God softens even the hearts of the Egyptian people such that they generously provide for God's people as they exit the land. It's unbelievable to see the power of God over creation and yet also over the human heart. On a scale, the timing, the depth and the detail, the gnats, the flies, the skies, the waterways, the people, the incredible sovereign power of God. That's the first point, God's sovereign power unprecedented, like no other. There is one God and only one God. Just a quick aside, I'm about to take this little team over to India uh, in July and uh, we're going into a massively polytheistic society, the Indian population. Hundreds of gods in the Hindu uh, faith. And so one of the things we have to do as, we, as I lecture, as some of us lecture and as we give testimonies over there is we can't just say, um, I believe in God. Because if we say, I believe in God, that kind of well throws it open to, you know, however many thousands of gods there could possibly be. We have to say, I believe in the one and true living God. We have to be specific. Because this is what God is doing here. Your gods, Pharaoh, are nothing. I am powerful, says Yahweh. It's the first point, God's power. Secondly, God's proclamation. Uh, I wonder if you've ever thought, what is God communicating beyond his power through these plagues. Well, he's communicating a message of judgment and of hope. Uh, one commentator called these plagues missionary plagues. They do the work of mission, going out to seek and rescue and find the lost. 
in chapter 7, verse 17, as God is about to announce the first plague, chapter 7, verse 17. This is what Yahweh says. Here is how you will know that I am Yahweh. Watch, I will strike the water in the Nile with the staff in my hand and it will turn to blood. It's there to teach you that I am Yahweh. Chapter 9, verse 14, before the plague of hail, God speaks to Pharaoh to teach him that there is none like me, no one like me. 9.16, uh, and here's the most astonishing verse, I think. 9.16. God says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose, to show my power that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This man, Pharaoh, this self-made man, this genius, this king, this leader of Egypt, God says, I've raised you up for this. I've raised you up, harden your heart so the plagues may continue so that all the world may know that I am Yahweh. And God even says to Pharaoh and to the officials to tell their children about this such that the message of this may go down the generations. Do you see what is happening? As these plagues are being poured out on the nation, I thought to myself at once, why doesn't God just send one enormously huge plague upon Egypt and say, there you go, I'm Yahweh, deal with it. Why does he give nine? Why does he give ten plagues? Because God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to salvation. And so he slowly deals out his judgment one plague after another, to see that people would come to know that he is Lord. And so that happens with the officials. They begin to say, you are the Lord. Pharaoh, he is God. Stop. Let them go. You know, God takes something that looks really odd and patchy and random and somewhat meaningless, and yet he preaches this powerful evangelistic mission-based sermon what God is doing here as he speaks through the plagues. Ordinary, it might seem, patchy, but it communicates the sovereignty of God, the judgment and mercy of God. One way he does that is to expose the idols in the lives of Egypt, the idols in our lives. He proclaims himself who should be proclaimed. It's a supernatural work that's going on. And have a look at me. Come with me to chapter 9, verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 22, where God makes a distinction between uh, his people, Israel, and the Egyptians. Chapter 9, verse 22, as he preaches this mission message. Uh, 9.22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven and let there be hail throughout the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. So Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail. Lightning struck the earth and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. The hail with lightning flashing through it was so severe that nothing like it had occurred in the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout the land of Egypt, the hail struck down everything in the field, both man and beast. The hail beat down every plant of the field and shattered every tree in the field. The only place it did not hail was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. There were going to be massive privileges for the people of God who were living in the land of Goshen. Goshen, we read in Genesis 45, was the part of Egypt where Joseph 
brought his father and brothers to live. It must have been fairly central, I think, as Joseph said, he wanted to keep his brothers and his his father kind of close to him as he was in the court. And here is God, organising all these plagues, gnats, flies, boils, darkness, hail, supernaturally and miraculously causes the damage to be done to Egypt, but absolutely peace and security to exist in Goshen. Of course, here it is to make a distinction, verse 23, between my people and your people, Pharaoh. This was to cause the people watching to choose carefully who they would obey and who they would like to belong to. I'm not sure what you think of flies. Does anyone here like flies? I hate them. I hate flies. One fly on my back or on my nose or on my face is enough to irritate me and to throw me off all sorts of scents. But I can't imagine swarms of them everywhere, all over the ground. Anyone been to the Northern Territory where you're walking around Ayers Rock and someone says your back's just covered in flies? Thankfully you can't really feel them. But everywhere. But in Goshen, not one fly. Incredible. God will set the flight path of the flies, power and sovereignty at work. This is to make people aware that God makes a distinction. This is to cause people who are watching the plagues to revere God and seek him as their God and to give up on the idols they are, unab- they are following which are unable to protect them and support them. These plagues, these nine plagues here and one next week, the tenth, and famous plague, the death of the firstborn, salvation by the perfect slain lamb of God. But you'll see that in these nine plagues, God is showing himself to be great and sovereign, a God who makes a distinction, but also a God who is amazingly patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to salvation in him. That's why there are nine plagues, not just hail, not just locusts, but nine. But friends, when the tenth one comes, of course, the death of the firstborn, that time will be finished. It's a tremendous, remarkable thing. You can read this account, you can say to yourself, well, it was a messy time, wasn't it, back in Egypt in those days. I'm glad I wasn't there. But if you say that, you've missed the point. God is showing himself to be wonderful, wonderfully powerful and extremely patient. He's setting a line down the middle so that people can choose and that his patience has got a limit. Because there will come a time when the tenth plague will come and suddenly death will really hit home. The Baptist preacher Spurgeon told a really great story of a conversation he had with a 20-year-old. It began like this. He said to the 20-year-old, Do you belong to Christ yet? The 20-year-old replied, Soon, soon. Spurgeon said, well, let's set a goal then, my 20-year-old friend. By the age of 30, why don't you become a Christian? That'll give you 10 years to work it all out. No, 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 he said. There are many, many uncertainties and dangers that can come my way and that could take place in that decade. I could be dead and I could be damned by the time I'm 30. Well, Spurgeon then said, well, okay, why don't we make it 12 months? You can spend the next 12 months rebelling against God as much as you want and then on that day, turn to God and become friends with him. Mm. Even a year has no guarantee, he said. 
I may be in greater darkness and greater hardship in that 12 months. I think I'd better do it now. Isn't that what we're learning here from the nine plagues? Every opportunity is given to Egypt to know that God is God and to turn and respond to him, to find security, to find meaning, to find identity, to worship him. Well, the third and final thing this morning is the preview. There's not simply ancient history that belongs way back in the beginning of your Bible, never to be read again and keep it there. Now, this is a preview, a rehearsal of a much greater judgment that is to come, not just on Egypt, but on the whole world. God's preview. The plagues tell us what God thinks of idolatry. He exposes it and he tramples on it. But he's also to save, he's also able to save people from it. You and I here today who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be very grateful that he's able to save us from our idols. Because we are incapable of dropping our idols on our own. He helps us. We can't take hold of Christ Jesus unless he helps us. Everyone is an idle factory in the world if we are left to ourselves. And everyone needs Jesus. That reading we had from Revelation chapter 16 describes the coming day of judgment. And that's when God will deal with idolatry and rebelliousness of people on a global scale. says it will be a day of hail and darkness and uses language drawn from Exodus, the plagues. No one on that day without Christ will be safe. And no one with Christ on that day will be in danger. No one without Christ on that day will be safe, but no one with Christ will be in danger. Future judgment, according to the Bible, is the day of justice. And that will be a very great day. A day that, in a sense, we as Christians look forward to with joyful expectation. But there is a real sense that it will also be a dreadful day. The great Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias says this, the church needs to get into the habit of how to communicate the day of judgment to the world. Because the world is completely ignorant of the Day of Judgment. What a great legacy of our Archbishop to leave that the one thing he hopes that we will keep doing under his leadership and under the leadership of the next person is to keep preaching in the public square that Jesus is the King of the universe. He is the one who has swallowed up evil and death and in him we have eternal life. And he is our only hope. He is our only sure security. Because the next great event to occur in human history is not the lions versus the wallabies, although that could be an epic day. It's the judgment of God in his son, in his great return. This needs to be on our agenda. We must explain it so that people understand the issues and can take refuge in him. One of the things that really struck me about this passage is that as we see in the life of Jesus Christ, in all his grace and forgiveness and love and care and faithfulness, all the plagues that you and I deserve for our sin, 
for our rebellion against God, all the plagues that you and I deserve have fallen into the heart of our Saviour who died for us on the cross. In him we have security. And in only him do we have security. Get rid of your idols. Are your idols working for you? Power. Will that save you on the day of judgment? Will that affair save you when you come to the end? Will money get you across the sea into heaven? God teaches us. He's merciful with us. He's patient with us. Today is the day of salvation. All the plagues that you and I deserve have fallen into the heart of our Saviour. Let's proclaim him, the powerful king of the universe, who through him and by him and for him all things were made. Let's find our security in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your love for us. Father, we thank you that you are patient with us. Uh, Lord God, that you are not wanting any one of us here today to perish, but to find salvation in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we just marvel at your power, your ability to do all things. We praise you especially, though, for Jesus who took our punishment, who took our plague for us. Father, may we be people who herald this good news, that Jesus is King of the universe into the public square, into our offices, our homes, in all facets of our lives, not for our glory, not to us, but to your name be the glory, Lord God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.